Type 1 diabetes affects 300,000 people in the UK. People with type 1 diabetes self-manage, but there are ways health professionals can help to empower them to do this successfully. Our recent clinical review discusses this issue and presents the evidence for structured education programmes to support self-management. I'm Sophie Cook, Clinical Reviews Editor, and to find out more about this review, I'm joined in the studio today by two authors of the review, Nick Oliver, a consultant diabetologist at Imperial College London, and Philippa Cooper, a person with over 20 years of experience in managing her own diabetes. Nick and Philippa, thank you for joining me today. I think it would be really useful first if we talk about what we mean by self-management. Philippa, do you want to talk about that? Um, I think it's important to realise that most, well, virtually everybody with type 1, we only spend probably an hour, maybe a bit more a year, actually with healthcare professionals, even though we have access to them via email and phone. So the rest of the time, we're managing on our own. So we need the tools and the equipment to be able to do that, which is really the self-management. And why is it so important for health professionals to support and enable their patients that they see with diabetes to self-manage? Every day I make multiple decisions on what to do in managing my type 1. So be that what type of food to eat at certain times because of what I'm going to be doing, how much insulin I'm going to be giving myself. I need to be able to make those decisions on my own because I'm not every time I need to make a decision going to pick up the phone. I have to make that decision for myself. So you talk a bit about the structured education programmes in the review. Can you tell us a bit about what they are? Because I'm not sure that all generalists will be aware of these. Nick, do you want to, do you want to tell us about that? Uh, so structured education is a programme of education for people with diabetes and there are programmes for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes and what they aim to do is to uh, give a curriculum based, evidence based approach to self management so that at each decision point during the day, be it physical activity or food or self monitoring or stress uh, or just the challenges of everyday life, people with diabetes can uh, have a set of principles to guide them to make decisions around food and insulin so that they're diabetes is effectively self-managed. Can you tell us a bit about the evidence for these programmes? Yeah, so they started off in Germany uh, a few decades ago and were translated then into English. Uh, and the first one that has, a, has an evidence base is called DAFNI, which stands for Dose Adjustment for Normal Eating. And what that showed oh, oh, in a randomised controlled trial that was published in the BMJ, actually, was that uh, uh, there is a reduction in HbA1c and there are improvements in self-management confidence. And that's really important. As doctors, I think we get very obsessed with glucose and glucose outcomes uh, because obviously they're very important in terms of managing long-term complications risk but actually from a self-management day-to-day point of view quality of life and and feeling confident in making decisions uh, is as important if not more important. Can you tell us a bit about the program itself when someone goes on a program how long is it what what do you do is it lectures is it sort of discussions? Um, Daphne which is the course I did it's run by healthcare professionals a dietitian and a um, diabetic specialist nurse and one day a consultant comes in for an afternoon of questions and and to be interrogated Um, and the rest is a group of people with type 1 some people may have only had it a year or so there were people on my course who'd had it for 30 40 years so there's a lot of wealth of experience in the room and it was about sharing experiences, but also being shown different principles of how to 
manage and look at different circumstances. And it's very evidence-based because you are told something and then you try it out. Um, it may be you go home and they change all your insulin regime and things like that, but you go and try it and the next day you come in and everybody shows, well, this is what I ate last night, this is what happened, this is what what should we do, you know. And then around a table you sort of make suggestions. Um, you know, it might be, oh, that worked perfectly for you, but it might be somebody saying, oh, if I saw that, I'd try, change it, you know, maybe a bit more insulin or something like that. Um, but yes, that that's how it is. And it's very open in discussion and it's... Um, it's very nice just meeting other people with type 1 as well and their experiences and you all bring something to the table. I know in your story that you wrote to accompany the review you talked about how you'd been managing your diabetes for a long time before you went on one of these courses. Yes. When When is the optimum time for somebody to go on? Is there an optimum time? It, it's very difficult for me. Um, I think the problem is there's a lot of people like myself who've had type 1 for many, many years and actually... I probably was only given maximum a couple of hours of education when I was first diagnosed. I was diagnosed as an adult and then basically sent away to get on with it. Um, and it amazed me, absolutely amazed me when I went on the Daphne course, the things that nobody had ever told me. And th they were really important things like six day rules. The only thing I'd ever been told is never stop taking your insulin. B but apart from that, nothing um, and I think one of the points I'd like to get across is that you, people don't know what they don't know and it's there's an assumption after you've had type 1 a certain number of years well you must know what you're doing you've had it you know five years 10 years 15 years but you're actually just getting on with it and you adapt your life to get round circumstances whereas actually with education probably you wouldn't have to make those adaptations and um, life would probably be a lot easier. What were the things that you found most useful? I mean, you said the sick day rules was one of them. What other sort of information did you take away that, that you hadn't realised was important before? I think one of the most important things I took away, which wasn't anything from the actual education course, it was the first time in 17 years since I was diagnosed I had knowingly spoken to another person with type 1. Really? And it was eye-opening to me because all the things that you go into appointments and I will apologize to Nick now because not all healthcare professionals are like this but I had walked out of many of them thinking that I was the worst person with type 1 and I just didn't get it I just couldn't work out how people coped how people kept in target the whole time because that was the impression I was given that other people were managing this why aren't you and I couldn't um, and then I sat in a room full of people and they were exactly the same as me. And they also weren't in target the whole time. And we all did things that we know technically, you know, healthcare professionals might not advocate, but you do it because that's where you get round circumstances. If you don't want to go low, you don't care if you're going to go high, but that's better than going hypo in certain circumstances. And we were all sat there, and actually, I think that was a relief to me. It was a real pressure off when I suddenly realised, actually, I wasn't the worst person with type 1. I was just a person with type 1. Mm. So I think it's a lot about, it sounds like there's there's an educational, sort of a medical education side, but also a social and psychological side to the programme yes. as well, which yes. is really important too. Yeah.
Nick, have you, have you got anything to add about the, you know, the, the structure of the education or the components of the um, the program that, that you think that GPs should know about? No, I think the, the really important thing that Philip has said is that it's never too late for education and there's, there's no wrong time for education. In, in the NICE guidance, it recommends that it's from six months of diagnosis that everybody should be offered structured education. And I think the reasons for that are that immediately after diagnosis, there's an awful lot of things to take on board and there's some adjustment to the diagnosis of a long-term condition so it may be that at that time the the sometimes overwhelming amount of information structured education might not be the best time to deliver it though for some people it's exactly the right time and and we certainly do deliver it to, to people early in their diagnosis the other thing to bear in mind immediately after diagnosis is sometimes people are still making quite a bit of their own insulin and some of the more subtle calculations around carbohydrates and insulin um, are are less important and may have less impact um, but there's no wrong time to do education and there's no wrong time to re-educate and have refreshers and to go back and learn again. I like the way in the review that you break up things sort of the, the different aspects of managing diabetes I think that's really helpful for GPs who are seeing patients or people with diabetes that they may not see that often particularly type 1 that tends to be managed in secondary care. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the key things like managing blood, blood glucose, managing ketones, diet, some of the queries about diet I found very interesting as well and what you you know you, you should and shouldn't be advising. Um, can we talk a bit about managing blood glucose to start with and the principles behind the self-management advice that you give in the review? So this is an opportunity to talk about blood glucose monitoring strips. You so can, yeah, so one, one of the big challenges for some people with type 1 diabetes is getting sufficient strips the nice guidance says test eight to ten times a day is the optimal cost-effective strategy try getting 10 strips out of some gps a day i know i completely appreciate this because it's a it's an ongoing problem yeah, with repeats but they also they get taken off your repeat prescription every so often and it's not the gps doing it but sometimes i imagine and my imp impression is that the practice manager's got something saying that type 2s are now restricted yeah, to yeah. two tubs a month yeah. or whatever yeah. it is they are. Um, and so they just go through the system and wipe it off your repeat prescription. And you know you're going to get them. You know you're going to get them back. But it's the hassle and the time. But it's also the stress of it because you're just like, oh, am I going to have to get a letter from my consultant? Am I going to... And it's just something you don't need. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think there is an important point there, isn't there, for GPs to, to not necessarily think about the quantity itself, but to think about what's right well, for the person in front of them. Yeah, yeah it, it works. Yeah. From an HbA1c and a hypoglycemia point of view, that is the most effective strategy, so it yeah. should be supported and empowered. Mm -hmm. I agree. I do agree. Um, you, you mentioned you were keen to talk a bit about continuous glucose monitoring. So do you want to do that? Do you want to tell us a bit about continuous glucose monitoring? Yeah, sure. Uh, so continuous glucose monitoring is is uh, not that recent technology, actually. It's been available since about 1999. But we very recently have had an, an improvement in the technology and some improvements in the sensor accuracy and how they work. They are a small needle that just sits under the skin and measures your glucose every five minutes. So you get 288 values over the course of the day. And the monitors can give you information whether your glucose is going up or down and the speed at which it's going up and down as well, which is very important for making decisions around food and insulin. And for the first time, uh, we now have NICE guidance in 2015 uh, 
the, the type 1 diabetes guidance for adults, which supports the use of continuous glucose monitoring for a population of people who are, have been through structured education and who are doing self-monitoring but are still struggling with uh, disabling or difficult hypoglycemia or are struggling to fight, achieve the target HbA1c. And Philippe, you, you mentioned that you're using one of these at the moment. What's, been your, what, what's your experience of using one? How do you find it? Um, it's like turning on a light in a dark room because managing type 1, a lot is you're second-guessing yourself and what's happening in your body. And even though you can try and predict, you can do the same thing every day and every day you will get different results. So you're trying to predict what's the unpredictable. And having a CGM, for me, means that I can see what's happening. It's also meant that my management has improved because before, even though I was testing eight to ten times a day, I didn't check half an hour after eating necessarily. Things happen in between those tests and you have no idea what's happening between them. And now I do. And so I can act upon that. And it also changes how much insulin I take for meals, depending on whether my blood glucose is rising, falling, or if it's in a steady state. Does it have the facility to tell you, if to sort of alert you if you're running low? Yes, it, it has, you can set a low alert and a high alert. Um, I set both. Um, the low alert I set so that it gives me time to treat before I get hypo. Um, and a high alert just catches if you're going high because you don't always realise, and it means that I can actually take action before it gets too high, hopefully. And are these widely available now? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, I think devices are, are readily available for people with type 1 diabetes. And now that we have the nice guidance that supports these being available to people with type 1 diabetes, um, there should be appropriate local funding streams to enable those people that meet the criteria to access them across England. But in practice, yeah. <laughs> in practice I would say of adults, and I can't, I can't comment on yeah. children's services because I'm sure. obviously not part of them. Um, it's very rare for an adult to get funding. If we move on from blood glucose now and think a bit about ketone monitoring, if someone asks for their for advice from from a non-specialist about ketone mon monitoring, what what advice should we be giving? So, being able to measure ketones is an important component of diabetes, type one diabetes self management, um, and is a really important part of looking after diabetes when when there's illness or when there's something else challenging going on. So, um, what we see with high blood glucose is that people can develop ketones, and if that's left unchecked, it can progress to diabetic ketoacidosis, and that's obviously um, a very unpleasant, com short, acute complication of type one diabetes, um, and can be very serious. So, the ability to measure ketones at home and that can be either from urine or blood or capillary blood is really important to identify whether a high blood glucose is just because um, there's been an insulin and food mismatch after a meal or whether it represents a true insulin deficiency and needs addressing because the, the self-management and, and what we would suggest people do with their diabetes is different between those two scenarios so it's very important to be able to do that. 
Historically, we would give people urine strips uh, to, to dip their own wee at home uh, to see if they have ketones. That's not always convenient, and certainly not if you're out and about. Um, and we now have capillary blood glucose monitors that, with slightly different strips, are able to also measure capillary blood ketones. And that obviously has the um, advantages of being point of care. It's quantitative rather than qualitative, uh, and uh, is hopefully something that's more usable for people with type 1 diabetes without carrying around urine strips and, th- and that inconvenience. So um, we, as part of structured education and as part of talking about sick day rules, uh, would always talk about self-monitoring of ketones, and that's a really important component uh, of how to manage high blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask practically, are there any monitors that do both? Glucose? Yeah. There are. Yeah. You can get ones that sort yeah, of absolutely. do both. Absolutely. So there are, there are two different monitors on the market that will measure glucose and 3-hydroxybutyrate, which is the predominant ketone body. And what about the continuous glucose monitors? Do they do they so they don't have ketone technology no, yet? No, that's okay. just that. But I, I think an important point is being able to self-monitor ketones, check for them if you're mm. ill, actually can keep you out of hospital. Yeah. Because the old advice was, oh, if you've had a sickness bug or something for 48 hours, just go to A&E. Because mm. at that point, they're not sure what's happening. Um, but now... If you are ill, you don't feel well, you check for ketones. If you've got them, you know sort of like a protocol of this is what I need to do. And quite often you can manage yourself at home, which is always preferable to going to the hospital um, and saves money that way anyway. Let's talk a little bit about diet and advice for people with, with diabetes, with type 1 diabetes. What sort of advice should we be providing about sort of the healthy diet that a person with type 1 diabetes should be consuming? My advice as a person with type 1 is it would be the same as you would to the general populace without type 1 diabetes. And I think the important thing is but managing yourself in the structured education, it gives you the tools to be able to eat whatever you like, well, I'll say whenever you like, but within reason, but that's no different from everybody else. Um, So I don't think there are any foods that I would say I will never touch um, or foods that I have to eat because I have diabetes. I I think that's part of the education. Mm -hmm. That's probably quite a good lead into talking a little bit about the carbohydrate counting and sort of calculating insulin requirements according according to what, what your intake is. What advice should non-specialists give on this or should they be advising on this? I think that's quite challenging. So the everyday management of carbohydrate counting and insulin dose calculation or adjustment um, is dependent on knowing what the insulin to carbohydrate ratio means, what the insulin sensitivity factor means, um, what rough carbohydrate counting um, is and and how to do it, particularly when you're eating out or eating in an unfamiliar place or someone else has cooked for you. Um, And I think um, those principles are important for everyone to understand, but I think the the, the in-depth support needs to be done by a specialist multidisciplinary team with the person with diabetes. And yeah, I th- and I think it's also um, important, and I know this sounds quite silly if you know this, but it's n- not always widely known, is that it's not sugars you're counting, it's carbohydrates. So having a spoonful of sugar, even though it might have a bit rapider effect on my blood sugars, if I ate the same amount of carbs as rice, 
that's going to do the same. So there's no real, it's a, carbo, a carbohydrate is a carbohydrate. And um, I think some people believe that it's sugars you're counting um, and ignore starches. Yeah. So perhaps there's an opportunity there for, for generalists to sort of give that basic level education, but then refer on for the more in-depth support that they need. I think something else which is important is you, you do talk a bit about the psychological support that, that's important as well, and it's not just the medical. What sort of psychological support should we be offering people with type 1 diabetes? Philippa? Um, I, I think it... I think one of the points of type 1, and I think the longer I have it, the more I realise it is as much a mental game as a physical, um, because it is unpredictable and that is difficult to work with at times. And it is unrelenting because I can't take time off. Um, and in the foreseeable future, <laughs> I'm not going to get any time off. Um, that's it. And it is a pressure and it's a whole extra job you have to do because I still have a full-time job, I still have a mortgage to pay, I still have shopping to do, I still have cleaning to do. And even though I have a hypo, I can treat it, but that doesn't mean the rest of my day goes away. Um, I still have to carry on. So it, it is unrelenting and I think the mental side of it is important. And there are times when I'm fine with it and there are other times when it it gets to me, I think it would with anybody. Um, and I think those are the times when I think it's important for healthcare professionals to listen out for those signs because it is difficult to sort of go to somebody and say, actually, it's getting to me at the minute. And it might be something simple, but I think that's where peer support comes into it as well. Um, but healthcare professionals as well, because I know that psychological support, if you need it, which is would be useful but also I found since doing Daphne and now I am in contact with a lot of people with type 1 be it on social media or in real life and it's just so good talking to people who actually get it and um, even though they can do nothing for you to change the situation but just talking and sharing I think it's really good and healthy um, and like I said before, I think it makes you realise you're not the only one who's going through it and that other people have been there before. And it's very rare that anybody can say anything that, you know, most of the people in the room with type 1 can't identify with yeah. and know. And it, it's sometimes just nice being in a group of people out for a meal and you're the normal ones because you're all getting out your kits, you're all testing, you're all debating how many carbs and... Um, you know, dosing insulin, whereas in most social situations you are the only one and you're like under the table with your meter because you're not sure how people mm. will react. Yeah, I think that's really good advice and I think what I'm taking away from this is, is as a person who doesn't see people with type 1 diabetes very often, if someone comes to see me, I probably focus on the medical things because it's it's something that is is not it's not my bread and butter of day-to-day -day sort of general practice, but I think it's important to know that it, you know the psychological aspect is something we shouldn't forget and also I think that the peer support is important and I just wondered if there are any groups that you found particularly useful that you could recommend um, that, that doctors might be able to point point people in the direction of um, definitely on Twitter mm -hmm. um, there's the hashtag um, GBDoc GBDoc um, and they have weekly tweet chats 
And I know some healthcare professionals are quite concerned of what we're going to be telling each other or giving medical advice or, I don't know, telling people to stop taking insulin and start eating cinnamon and okra. Um, But actually, we quite efficiently self-manage ourselves if somebody comes in with something that sounds not particularly well advised or whatever I think we self-manage quite well but it's a way to share experiences and just get support you can be having a really tough day you can have been up half the night treating hypos and you're at work and you're tired but you've still got to do what you've got to do and sometimes it's the difference between just putting a message out there saying I had a really horrible night and I feel like that and somebody else coming back like oh you know half an hour later I hope you how are you doing what what's happening or things like that um, there's also face-to-face things. I think here in London, um, where I'm based, there's a few. And I know locally, me and a couple of, well, three other local type ones that I met through other groups, we've set up a group that meets um, once every other month. And we meet up in a pub. Anybody can turn up. There's just times that we know we're definitely going to be there. And people can just turn up. And we just chat. And sometimes we're chatting about things to do with diabetes. Sometimes we're just chatting. Um but it's just a, a nice way. And it's also where you find out things as well. You find out what's happening. Um, you find out about research things that are going on sometimes or new technology. Or if you're thinking about new technology, like I wear a CGM, um, it was really good before I made that commitment in cash to actually see somebody and see what it did and how they used it. And, oh, well, what do you do if this? What do you do there? Um, and I think that that's really useful as well. Thank you. Anything that you want to add to that, Nick? Um, I think the only, the only thing I'd say is that as healthcare professionals, it's really important that in addition to talking about glucose and blood pressure and cholesterol, we ask people how they feel about their diabetes and, and that that is a dynamic thing. Um, and sometimes when things are going okay, it can all be fine, but, but sometimes it might not be. Um, and one of the things that... that many diabetes MDTs will have is a diabetes specialist psychologist who um, can talk about strategies to to manage those overwhelming times and strategies to cope with when diabetes is is most challenging. Um, And it's not uh, because we think people with diabetes are mad, but but it is a relentless thing and it's very difficult and challenging on a day-to-day basis that every decision is, is affected by your diabetes. So Talk to your healthcare professionals and, and, and access psychology if it's challenging. And, and similarly, I think the responsibility is ours to ask people how they're feeling. Can, can I add one point on that? And I think it's something that I think is really important is the language that healthcare professionals use. I went for sort of years and years and was always sort of like, oh, you go and you know that some of your results are just not going to be that good. And you're just sort of fearing it, saying, oh, I'm going to be told I've done badly again, and this and the other. And I think it's the point that there are no good or bad numbers. It's just a number. And that actually it's either in range, above range, or below range. And it's just an indicator of what you've got to do next. And there's no guilt involved in it. And I think some healthcare professionals, you even now, you get a thing in it back, oh, you're a bit high there, aren't you? And it it's no, it, it sort of puts pressure on you where there shouldn't be. And I think it's trying to be positive about things. And I think that's what I try and do now with the healthcare professionals I see. I, I've got a team now where I can talk with them openly. I don't feel I'm being judged. And 
it's what you can do. There's no, if things haven't gone well, well, they haven't gone well. There's nothing you can do about that. Move on from it. What we're going to do moving forward. And I think that's the thing. And it's, um, I, I did write in my part, it's like, I don't take a blood glucose test because tests you pass or fail. I just check where I am. And it's just a point of, okay, I'm here. What have I got to do now? And I think that's a psychological thing. And I think it helps you then face your diabetes because nobody wants to take a test they think they're going to fail so why would you take a test whereas if you're just checking where you are well I'll see where I am and then I'll see what I've got to do next and it sounds silly but it makes a really big difference yeah that's really interesting 